next week. I know this gets confusing. And then we'll come back on February the 9th, which means the 9th, 9, 16, 23, those three. I don't know if we'll quite finish. I think I'm shooting to finish by the end of February, but depends on how things go next week and after after we get I get back but I'll be leaving for Kiev on the on the 15th of January I'll be back on the 31st but that Sunday night I'll still be jet lagged which means at four o'clock in the afternoon I'll think it's midnight and time to go to sleep <laughs> I have a hard time that first week so um, I won't I won't be in great uh, great shape to begin with. So that'll be the schedule. And for those who missed a couple of the sessions last time uh, in the between Thanksgiving and Christmas as we started interpretation, those are up on the internet and you can watch those and work through work through some of the some of the exercises. Okay? All right, well, let's start off with a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're spiritually prepared to study the Word. I'm a little bit late starting tonight, so uh, let's go ahead and get started. I'll open in prayer after a few moments of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together to study these things, to be challenged in how to study your word and to think about the principles of interpretation. Father, as we come to uh, this study, we recognize how important it is because when it, uh, after we deal with all the other issues of observation and everything else, it is how do we understand the meaning of what you have communicated that is so important. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to these principles we study this evening. We pray in Christ's name, amen. There's a story that John Knox was involved in a debate. John Knox was the great Scottish Protestant reformer. He was involved in a debate over principles of theology with the Roman Catholics and um, Queen Mary of Scotland said, well, you say the Bible means this, the Roman Catholics say the Bible means that, why should we take your view? And that's really the big question in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics answers the question, what does the Bible mean? We've already looked at uh, the first aspect of Bible study methods, answering the question, what does the Bible say, where we really try to deal with the details of the text to make sure we see what is there. But then we have to put it together and understand what does it mean. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I think most of us had, where we're talking to someone about the Bible, and we have a conversation not unlike that of uh, John Knox and Queen Mary, where people say, well, so-and-so says it means this, and somebody else says it means that, and you say the Bible means something else. Everybody can just make the Bible mean whatever they want it to mean. 
And that's the problem of interpretation, because if the Bible or any other piece of literature can mean whatever the reader wants it to mean, then it really doesn't mean anything. Think about that. If something can mean whatever anyone wants it to mean, no matter how contradictory those meanings might be, then it really doesn't mean anything. If meaning is in the mind of the, of the hearer or the reader and not in the text or the mind of the original author, then we really can't know what it something means at all because it means something different to everybody else. And we really don't live that way. When April 15th comes along and we have to fill out our income tax and we read the directions, it really doesn't matter what we would like those directions to say. What matters is what the IRS uh, says that they mean. Uh, Otherwise, there would be about 300 million different interpretations, most of them contradicting the literal meaning of the text. So meaning is important. And it, the text only has one meaning. That's what, one of the principles that we're going to see. But I want to develop these in a little more of a logical, uh, logical sense. Now we'll look at some scripture passages in just a minute. But I want to begin by looking at, uh, the basic principle. I forgot to put in my opening slide. Basic principles derived from the basic self-evident meaning of, 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 of basic, basic axioms of Scripture. Now, in, an axiom in logic is a self-evident truth. So it is a self-evident truth that the Bible is a book. That is not something that needs to be proved because it is obvious to anyone who looks at it. If you even understand the meaning of the words, the word biblos, which is our English word Bible, is a Greek word meaning a book. So the Bible is clearly a book. Now, as we look at the book, at the Bible, there are two basic uh, axioms that we can develop along with that basic principle that the Bible is a book. And when we ask the question, what kind of book, we see that the Bible is a human book and a divine book. Now, as we structure this, I want to talk about it as a human book first because human authors are the ones who actually put uh, pen to paper or stylus to clay or whatever the writing instrument was to whatever material they use, whether it's vellum, papyrus, clay. It was human writers that did the actual writing of the Scripture. What makes the Bible unique is that there's a dual authorship. We have the human author pinning the actual words of Scripture to the page, as it were, And then we have the divine author who is working behind the scenes, working in and through the human author, guaranteeing that what the human author is writing is without error and uh, making sure that that which is written is exactly what God intends. 
so that as we look at the definition of inspiration, God governs or God superintends the writing of the scripture in such a way that the human author writes what God intends without error, and God superintends the process in a way that does not override the individual uh, personality, style, background, vocabulary of the human author. That results in a divine human composition. Now, since the Bible is written initially by, by the, and actually by the human being, we'll start with the basic principle that the Bible is a human book. So there are certain things that we can develop logically from that initial uh, axiom, several principles that relate to understanding uh, meaning. And that's what we talk about when we talk about hermeneutics. I made the point early on when we were first studying the meaning of hermeneutics that the term hermeneutics has in recent years, in the last 20 or 30 years among scholars, uh, evangelical Protestant scholars has gone through some uh, some challenges and and it, when, whenever people get into debate over absolutes and things begin to fall apart, which is what we 've seen in our culture philosophically and theologically over the last hundred years, the debate always comes down to what does it mean you didn 't have debates over hermeneutics in the late nineteenth century in in law or in theology like you do today. But once your foundation of truth becomes relativized, then you start having your core debates on the issue of meaning and over the issue of hermeneutics. So the point that I made in the introduction is that the study of hermeneutics is the study of principles, the principles related to to uh, this, the interpretation of any work of, of literature, any work of writing. As we look at that, we should also note that these principles are not derived from uh, some sort of autonomous system that's then imposed upon the Bible. Now, that's important because what we have to understand is that the Bible demonstrates to us its own uh, system of of interpretation. We see the Bible interpreting the Bible in places so that uh, we can infer these principles from the text itself, and we don't uh, we're not imposing some system on top of the Bible. So we look at that also as the principles of interpretation because they are developed or inferred from communication because that's essentially what we're talking about is that the Bible is a piece of communication. It is God communicating to man, or in the case that we're discussing right now in terms of human authorship, human authors communicating to other human beings. And so it follows the basic principles of communication. Every single day, you and I are involved in interpretation. We get up in the morning, we turn on the television to listen to the weather, and we are immediately engaged in the process of hermeneutics. We're interpreting what the meteorologist is telling us 
over the television. We take his words verbatim. We take his meaning as literal. That's what we mean when we talk about uh, believing in the literal interpretation of Scripture. That Scripture has is normally that the words of Scripture are used in their normal, plain, everyday sense, unless there's something in the context to indicate that they should be uh, interpreted in a non non literal manner. And so the focus is on that. But we're engaged in that every single day. Man, as a communicator, in addressing other human beings does so in a manner assuming that other human beings can understand exactly what the initiator of the conversation intends to communicate. If we're involved in a conversation, I expect you to be able to instantly comprehend what it is that I am telling you. You don't need to have a secret code book. You don't have to have uh, some sort of magic glasses or a special hearing aid in order to catch some hidden meaning that is totally separate and distinct from the uh, literal meaning that I'm that I'm communicating. So one of the first things we understand here in terms of communication is that that interpretation or hermeneutics is essential to any form of communication. Now, if we take that back just a little bit, as I pointed out in the past, God is the eternal creator of everyone. God created human beings, according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in his image and in his likeness. Therefore, God, as the architect of creation, and as the designer of the human being, had in his omniscience at the beginning a plan to create a being that could correctly understand what God communicated. And the very first picture that we see of God in Genesis chapter 1 is as a communicator. God at, on the first day, God said, let there be light. God is communicating something, and what he communicates in that first command, let there be light, is exactly what occurred, and there was light. So what comes into existence conforms precisely to what God literally intended in his command, once we understand that term. As we go through scripture, we see that this is how it is. When God said, let there be light, water did not appear. When God said, um, uh, let, there, let the uh, trees and the, and the grasses and the plants spring forth vegetation, uh, we didn't have, see fish suddenly appear uh, in the air. So from the very beginning, there is, within the scripture itself, this sense of uh, literal communication. And God designed human beings to perfectly re- be able to perfectly receive what he was communicating and instantly understand it. So that in Genesis chapter 2, when God said, uh, you can eat from every tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was clearly understood that God was not talking about uh, some special kind of spirituality 
that was now available to Adam and Eve. He was talking about a literal tree that was in the garden and literal fruit that they were specifically prohibited from eating. So from the very beginning, we have this this concept of a literal interpretation based on uh, based on the concept of, of communication. So when we think about it in that way, the principles of hermeneutics are simply that the things, the principles that we have observed about communication and the understanding of communication. Therefore, they are not uh, in some. Uh, it's this isn't a system that's invented. It's a series of principles that are discovered through the observation of of communication. So as we look at this first principle that the Bible is a human book, what we learn from that is that the Bible as a book is written communication. And the human authors used various written symbols in order to communicate specific ideas and concepts uh, to its readers, that these were letters, these were symbols that were agreed upon so that uh, one could communicate and the other could understand it. Communication, whether spoken or written, always involves three basic elements. The first is there's a speaker or writer, the communicator. Second, there's a message that's either given audibly through uh, vocal sounds or through intelligible written symbols, uh, which we call words. And then we have, third, thirdly, the hearers or the readers. So if the purpose of the speaker or the communicator is to, uh, after the communication, have an identical idea in the mind of the hearer or the reader, then the message itself has to be clear so that the the hearer or the receiver will know exactly what is being communicated. So what we learn from that in terms of a first uh, corollary to this axiom or first principle is that each biblical writing, that is, each word, sentence, and book, was recorded in a written language and followed normal grammatical meanings, including the use of figurative language. The writer is writing Exodus or Deuteronomy or the Psalms or Matthew or Acts in in the same way in which he would write any other piece of literature so that those who read it would understand exactly what he is saying, following normal means of communication. Therefore, it's not written in some kind of unintelligible code. This basic principle of hermeneutics flies in the face of, there's a, there's a popular book out called The Bible Code. They've even got, I think, The Bible Code 2 out, which is uh, about some, uh, the theory is that through computer analysis, uh, they discovered that the Bible is filled with various skip co- number skip codes. You know what that is? That's where every third letter, every fourth letter, you take every third or every fourth, every fifth letter, and you put, string them together, and you have another message. The problem with a skip code, the ones that they've come up with, is like every 
4733rd letter, uh, you put those together. So they found these skip codes. The problem is you have to have a, a, an agreed upon original text for that to work. Because in Hebrew, what happened is they came along, it was originally just consonants, but they came along later on and they added some, uh, some vowels. The initial way they added vowels was they used a couple of different consonants to symbolize these vowels. So that added letters into the text. You had a, a Y or the Yod that was put in to symbolize an I. You had the Vav to symbolize an O or a U. And so that changed your number of letters. So that would shift the, the sequence of the number skip code. That immediately invalidates the whole thing. I don't know if they've ever answered that, but I don't think there is an answer to it because uh, this changed a lot. In fact, there are no two ancient Hebrew texts that agree. Because as time went by, they would add these vowel symbols for clarification. Didn't change the meaning of the words. It didn't change the meaning of the text, but it would change the number of letters that were on a page. Okay, so there's no such thing as an unintelligible code. There's no such thing as a spirit language. For a long time, they before they truly discovered Koine Greek, what was primarily studied was classical Greek. And so it was thought that Koine Greek, which differed from classical Greek to a certain degree, was a Holy Spirit language that the New Testament was written in. And so it was a special language, and you had to uh, understand that in a special way. The point that I'm making here is that uh, nothing in the Bible, Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek text, had to be decoded or deciphered. Uh, before the original recipients could understand it. They could just pick it up and read it and understand it without uh, any anything uh, going into any kind of deeper meaning or any meaning that was different from the literal text. It, this would mean that the words were immediately understandable to people. They were using normal language and normal meaning. And one of the basic assumptions that we bring to Bible study and to interpretation is that God is a God of sense and not nonsense. He's a God of meaning. He wants us to understand what he's saying. So he's not clouding it uh, or shrouding it uh, behind a, a literal meaning so that we have to guess at it. Uh, it is clear and it is overt. So if we make certain statements, if we were to talk, if I were to talk to an audience and say that that last summer I went on a trip and I drove from uh, Houston to Denver, I wouldn't want you to understand that as I went along that trip that I went through various uh, spiritual uh, challenges and fights and that the trip is really a metaphor for, for the spiritual life. That is going beyond the literal meaning of the text. So whenever we write something, we expect it to be interpreted primarily as a, um, a literal meaning. We see this especially in fulfilled prophecy. Let me give you just a couple of examples. We don't really need, need to or have time to go look at these verses. But in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Micah 5, 2, the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. In Matthew chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 2, we see that 
the Messiah is born in New York City. Now, wait a minute. It's a literal fulfillment. He's born in Bethlehem. Uh, it's not something that is not literal. We're told in Zechariah 9.9 that the Messiah will enter into Ju- Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. He doesn't ride a giraffe into town. He doesn't ride a Chevy into town. He rides on the foal of a donkey. It's a literal interpretation, literal fulfillment. In Isaiah chapter 53, we're told about the suffering Messiah, that he will die for our sins. That's the meaning of the literal meaning of the text, and that's how it is fulfilled. So we see from this that the goal of Bible interpretation is to determine the original meaning of the text, determine the literal meaning of the text. Now, one of the things that we ought to uh, uh, understand that gets into more of a complicated subject than in a survey is that there's a debate that goes on among scholars as to whether we're seeking the original meaning of the text or the original meaning uh, in terms of the author's intent. The reason that's significant is that that in the scriptures we have two authors. We have a human author and we have a divine author. The text represents the result of both authors. And so there are some who will make a distinction there, but I think that's a pretty fine distinction that, that it goes beyond what we're looking at right now. What we realize is that the text itself, the author, had an intended meaning, and it's our responsibility to discover that meaning. When I first started talking about hermeneutics, I pointed out that it was a science, and that relates to the principles. The application of those principles is the discovery of the meaning of the text, and that's what exegesis is. Exegesis is determining what the text says, the meaning of the text, whereas eisegesis, ex means out of, eisegesis, E-I-S, means into, eisegesis means reading something into the text that isn't there originally. So the normal or natural sense of Scripture gives us a system whereby there are controls for understanding the Scripture. So we should let the Bible uh, speak for itself. We have to let the Bible speak for itself and say what it is uh, going to say. For example, in Mark chapter 5, which gives us the a uh, story about G- Jesus casting the demon out of the Gadarene demoniac and into the uh, herd of pigs. The demons don't represent false doctrine, and the swine do not represent the unconscious mind. That's one of the allegorical interpretations. The demon represents a literal demon who is indwelling a literal human being. He's cast out of the human being and into a literal, and the demon, actually a legion of demons are cast into a literal herd of swine. So the goal is to determine the meaning of the original meaning of the text based on the literal meaning of the words and their grammatical association within the verse. A second corollary of our original principle that the Bible is a human book is that each biblical each biblical writing, each book was written by someone to specific hearers or readers in a specific historical geographical situation for a specific purpose. This relates to the principle that we often talk about, the literal 
grammatical, I mean, excuse me, the literal historical or grammatical historical uh, method of interpretation. We're looking at what the original situation was in history. Who wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books? Moses wrote that. Who was Moses? What was his background? When did he live? What was his role? To whom did he write? What were the circumstances surrounding the writing of the Pentateuch? We come to the New Testament. We study the book of Acts. When was the book of Acts written? Who wrote the book of Acts? What was the background to the writing of the book of Acts? Uh, All of that is important for understanding the uh, meaning, the intended meaning of the author in communicating what he is communicating in that particular book of Scripture. The third principle is that the Bible is going to be affected and influenced by the cultural environment from which each human author wrote. So when we look at the Old Testament and we look at a book, for example, uh, Nehemiah, which is talking about the return of the Jews from their captivity in Babylon, one of the things we're going to be looking at is the, the historical situation in Persia. Because Nehemiah is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, who is the uh, king of Persia. And so we have to understand how that affected the situation. What was the situation at that time in history? What exactly is a cupbearer? To us, that sounds like a rather insignificant role, but in that time it was a, had grown to be one of the most powerful roles in all of the uh, empire other than that of the king because the cupbearer originally started off as a person who was the food taster for the king to make sure that the king was not going to be poisoned and this meant that it had to be somebody that was extremely trustworthy and someone who might be willing to give their life for the king so that by as time went by that position uh, by its very nature, became uh, inhabited by people who were uh, trusted exclusively by the king, someone he could communicate with, and so it, it, it developed into a position of power, second most powerful position in the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to uh, Artaxerxes. And so he comes to Artaxerxes seeking permission to go back to uh, Israel, to Judah, in order to finish and complete the building of the walls around the city of Jerusalem. So all of that impacts what's going on in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, all the other books of Scripture are written at specific, specific times and specific places and to people facing specific situations and problems. And so to understand that helps us to understand the meaning of the text. A fourth principle is that each biblical writing was accepted are understood in the light of its context. So here I'm using the word context in terms of uh, the context of Scripture itself, not the cultural context, so that we look at uh, one of Paul's epistles and it had to fit certain standards in relation to what was known about the life of the Apostle Paul as laid out by Luke in the book of Acts. So understanding anything within a book to make sure that, for example, uh, 1 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians is really Scripture, you have to make sure that everything within that epistle is 
fits the standard of divine revelation. In the late first century, especially into the second century, when Christians would be persecuted and maybe even give their life for the possession of a scroll of Scripture, you wanted to make sure that what you had really was the Word of God. I mean, on a good day, hopefully, most of us would be willing to give our life for the possession of a copy of Paul's epistle to the Romans. But would you be willing to give your life for uh, the epistle to Barnabas? I don't think so. We want to make sure that what we have is the Word of God. So we have to make sure that what is there fits those standards of, of the Word of God. So the context, we had this, everything was studied within its context, and the initial readers of Scripture would understand what was written in a literal sense. Now, when we do, when we talk about this, we talk about written material, one of the things we can't avoid is talking about words, because words are the basic tools of communication. But a word can have several different literal meanings, and beyond that, a word can have several different metaphorical meanings. Not long ago, some ten years ago, somebody uh, wrote something to me in an email, and they commented that Isaiah chapter 14, which describes the fall of Lucifer, was just an extended metaphor. The problem is there's nothing in the passage that indicates it is metaphorical. It is describing something literal. And what we'll see in a little while is that even the figures of speech have a literal meaning that is understood under the normal con conventions of language. Let me give you a little bit of an example. Think about the English word trunk. What does the word trunk mean? Many what? Many things. Many things. What are they? What are some of the meanings for the word trunk? Trunk of a car. Trunk of a car. What? Elephant trunk? A tree trunk? A suitcase? Anybody hear of a trunk line? Yep. Related to communication, telecommunication. So you have a lot of different, different meanings to, um, uh, to the word trunk. How do you tell which meaning is the meaning in a particular sentence? Context. You can talk about putting the trunk in the trunk. Well, that immediately you, you think about it, you figure out what is going on. But the, the trunk that you're putting in the trunk, what does that look like? Does that look like an elephant's nose? It could. Or does it look like a piece of luggage? You know, you could be a taxidermist and you're putting the trunk in the trunk. So you have to look at context. Now, the problem we have as as English readers, is that we don't know Greek, and even if we do know Greek, we don't understand it in the same way that a uh, first-century person who spoke Greek as a first language would understand various meanings and idioms. How do we discern what those are? Usage. That's where concordances come into play. And, uh, and, and to some degree, we're all dependent upon scholars who have taken uh, most of their lives to dedicate to investigating and reading everything that's been written in Koine Greek or everything that was written in Hebrew so that they could do the best that they could do in terms of understanding these kinds of idioms. And then they would classify those usages. 
That's what we see in, in the lexicons. That's what we see in other uh, more in-depth uh, studies, like, like the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, is men who have gone through and read thousands, and in some cases it's thousands and thousands of, of, of entries of where a word is used. If it's a common word, then you have to read thousands and thousands of examples to be able to classify and categorize all the meanings. If it's a rare word, then it's not so many. But that's what we have to do, and that's how we uh, determine the meaning of a word is through through usage. We also have we also have phrases and words that have a metaphorical use or a non-literal use. But even if a word or phrase, so this is really important, even if a word or phrase has a non-literal meaning, it always has the same specific meaning. For example, if I'm out hiking in the woods in, in rugged terrain, I might say, Bill is over the hill. You would infer from the context being out in the woods in difficult terrain that there is a hill, especially if you can see it, and Bill is literally on the other side of the hill. But if Bill just had his 50th birthday and I said, Bill is over the hill, I'm now using the phrase over the hill in a non-literal meaning. But does anyone here misunderstand what I'm saying when I say Bill is over the hill? No, because the non-literal meaning has a still has a specific meaning. That's a literal meaning. Anybody here ever hear the phrase uh, hoist on his own petard? Yeah, that's a line from Hamlet. Anybody know what a, you know what a petard is, Pat? It's like a grenade. Yeah, it's like a grenade. These were landmines that in the uh, 16th, 17th century that your combat engineers would build. And of course, uh, black powder was pretty unstable at that point in history, and you would build your grenade or your little bomb with your fuse on it, and hopefully the fuse would not b- burn too fast. And then you would crawl up to the enemy's fortification, you would stick the petard under the wall, and you would light the fuse, and hopefully you would get away before it exploded. But if the thing that you were attempted blew up in your face, then you were hoist on your own petard. And so it became a metaphor for someone who basically, we would say today, shot themselves in the foot. They they tripped themselves up on their own uh, 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 on their own plan, so it's a figure of speech, but it has a specific meaning. This last week, somebody sent me a um, a fun little test on dialect that you could take, and uh, this was developed by two or three scholars who've been working on developing um, uh, a test to determine where a person was from based on their the language that they use. Some of you may have seen this. It's been shooting around the um, it came the, the website, I think, or the article came out in the New York Times right uh, before Christmas, and so people have been sending this around. And it asks a bunch of different questions, like what do you call certain things? What do you call that insect that has that lights up and flies around in the summer? You call it a firefly or a lightning bug or the terms interchangeable. And where, if you're from the south, you call it a lightning bug. If you're from the west or northwest, you probably call it a firefly. Different things like that. So what is the term? This is one of my favorites. What is the term 
that you, you, you use if you have one. You may not have one. When the sun is shining outside, but it's also raining, do you have a term for that? You don't. Have, you should have a term for it. You're a southern girl. You're from Houston. You should have heard this. When I say it, you'll probably know what it is. What? Rainbow light. There's there's liquid sunshine is one. That's probably north north. I think that was in the northwest. A lot of people don't have one in the south. The most common phrase for it is the devil is beating his wife. Yeah, see, I knew you'd heard that. That's that's a southern expression. Actually, it goes back to England, Hungary, and Holland, and has its roots going way back into the Middle Ages. How that developed, I mean, I did some research on that because I thought, oh, that's going to be a great example for hermeneutics, and trying to find out what was the original source of that. And and what 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 I read indicated that the devil is something bad, that's like rain, and and so beating his wife is... You know, he's married, that's something good, so he has something bad and good going on at the same time. Uh, the devil's beating his wife, so she's crying, that's the rain, it's something like that. But none of them really made any sense. But if you're from the South, and you heard somebody say, well, the devil's beating his wife, you would know exactly what that meant. But it would not be a meaning that was based on the dictionary meaning of those words. Okay? Now, there were some others, something about a wolf... Something about, there were three or four different ones, but apparently different cultures around the world came up with three or four different types of sayings related to describing that event, which was kind of bizarre. But I thought that was sort of an interesting illustration. So what we see is even when we're talking about something that's non-literal, it has an understood specific meaning. And everybody understands what that phrase or what that word means so it communicates to somebody okay let's stop there i started 10 minutes late so i'm going to take the break now and we'll come back at seven o'clock and then we'll uh finish with the uh, uh rest of the talk on these principles for hermeneutics